I genuinely feel I'm doing this episode for a reason. Welcome to the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast, exploring wellness tools to empower achieving your fullest potential. Your host is Sarah Price Hancock, Certified Rehabilitation Counselor with an Advanced Certificate in Psychiatric Rehabilitation and a Trained Peer Support Specialist. Sarah currently works as a Psych Rehab and Recovery Consultant, guest lecturing for universities and organizations determined to improve the quality of life by igniting hope, fostering choice and accountability, developing empowerment, creating a recovery environment, and finding meaningful purpose. So let's discuss emotional self-reliance with your host, Sarah. Hello, 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 and welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast. I am broadcasting to you live from the House on the Hill. Here today to, first we have to start out with our what went well and why exercise. And again, I do this exercise on a regular basis because it really helps me kind of reframe how I was looking at my life. And this exercise by itself really taught me how to pull myself out of feeling like a victim of my circumstances and a victim of my illness and a victim of everything. So Really, really, this is one of the reasons I insist on doing this at the beginning of every single episode. So just to give a little background, you every day you write out three things that went well, and you write out an explanation as to why you feel they went well. And that's actually the most important part. This is kind of like a gratitude journal on steroids. So you write out what went well, and then you write out the explanation as to why you feel it went well. So today is actually, I'm recording this on Christmas 2018, and today, first thing that went well was I got a new microphone for my podcast. Yes, folks, it's true. I have a new microphone, and I'm really super excited about this. I attribute this amazing gift to, I have a family who believes in me and my ability to share what I've learned from my own experience in my life overcoming the things that I have and somehow using this experience to share it with other people and help other people find light and hope in their journey as well. So that's what I attribute getting this amazing microphone. Um, so hopefully my audio will improve and I will continue to improve my editing skills as well. We'll just keep our fingers crossed on that one. The second thing that went well was I did not burn my house down today after leaving a tortilla on the stove. Yes, folks, it's true. When you live with a brain injury, sometimes you start things and forget that you even started them. And so a half an hour later, when my husband was asking me if I smelled something burning, and he asked me if I was even cooking anything, I had actually completely forgotten that I was cooking something, and my response to him was, well, we are, we did turn on the heater. Yeah. So... We did not burn the house down because my husband insisted that I investigate where the smell was coming from. And thank goodness we did. Because guess what, folks? Yours truly had left tortilla on the stove. So the third thing that went well was that I enjoyed a Christmas breakfast um, with my friends and family at my grandparents' house. I attribute this to the fact that I have amazing friends and family because I can't go into my grandparents' house because I am, I get extremely sick to the point of stopping breathing when I enter into buildings that have a history of water damage. My family rigged 
like this awesome card table outside with nice tablecloth and because they understand my dietary needs they even made a completely separate breakfast for me because they're amazing. It was pouring rain, we had a space heater, and we had a wide porch roof and it was awesome because I have people who support me and I am very very blessed because of that. So yeah, those are my three things that went well. And I cannot wait to hear the three things that are going well in your life and why you feel they are going well. So go ahead and send that to me at my email, which is emotionalselfreliancepodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and share what's going well with you, maybe in one of my podcasts. So again, what went well with an explanation as to why you feel it went well. So in my last podcast, I talked about 32 wellness tools that I've used to preserve my life when I was feeling suicidal. And those 32 things um, hopefully can give you kind of like a launch pad brainstorming tool for things that might help you or a loved one. It's not a definitive list, but they're definitely things that helped me. Now I'm shifting gears a little bit. This is also, this episode is also going to be about suicide. And the reason why is because I really, for some reason, I'm feeling compelled to do this episode. I know it's Christmas time. I know there's so much that's going on in this world and so many people are talking about joy and love and the hope that comes with Christmas. And while all of that is true, there's also a whole bunch of people who have extreme difficulties during this time of year. And so I want to reach out to all of their loved ones and all of their friends and family and neighbors, kind of share with all of you some myths about suicide. So I'm going to talk about, and then I'm also going to share with you 16 red flares for suicide. So I call them red flares because they're essentially in the army movies where the person that's in distress throws up the red flare in the middle of the dark night and they're in a desperate call for help. That's what a red flare is and it's the same for these suicide flares as well. I'm not saying that just because someone exhibits one of these red flares means that they're talking about suicide. What I'm really saying is that the more red flares a person throws up, the more likely the person is thinking about suicide. I recognize that there are many people who are survivors of suicide loss. I am not creating this podcast to rub salt in wounds because I understand that, honestly, I'm not here to should on you. I'm not here to tell you you should have known. But what I am here to say is if we can learn as many of these red flares as possible, then we can be the ones to prevent tragedy in the lives of others. So I'm going to share with you these 16 red flares. But first, I want to talk about the myths and the facts about suicide. In order to do this, I need to explain some things that I've learned about the word suicide. I tend to use the word suicide more as a verb. I don't say that a person attempted suicide because that indicates the person actually is cognizant enough to understand the decision that they're making. And frequently that's not the case. Frequently people act on suicidal thoughts or act on suicidal ideations when their brain is completely on fire or they are just in situations where they're not able to think logically. When people say attempt suicide or committed suicide, it sounds like they are committing a sin 
or they are attempting something like it's a cognizant, definite, determined decision. And oftentimes that's simply just not the case. I prefer to say a person acted on suicidal thoughts or they tried to suicide or I'll say a person completed a suicide, which means that, that they, they did pass away. So I also don't say things like it was a successful attempt or it was a successful suicide because that, that's like an oxymoron. I would never say that. So we just need to talk about some of the right ways to talk about the word suicide. This is going to be probably a pretty heavy topic, but I really, I don't, I really just feel like it needs to be said. I think that we can reach out and help so many more people if we know what to look for, because so many people don't know what to look for. And having lived with suicidal thoughts and voices and command hallucinations for 12 years, I can tell you that so many times I wished that someone could just relieve this burden from my shoulders and just reach out and help me. And it just... No one really understood what was go what I was going through, and they didn't really know how to help. A lot of people felt helpless, and this podcast is about enabling people to not feel helpless. And so that's what I'm going to be talking to you about this today. One of the myths is that suicide always occurs without warning. I can tell you that there are almost always at least one warning sign. It's for that reason that we really have to know what those warning signs or red flares really are, because if we know that there's almost always some kind of warning sign, then we know that we need to look for those warning signs. And so knowing what those signs are, obviously, is going to help us help other people. There's another myth that says that once people decide to die by suicide, that there's nothing we can do to stop them. In reality, Many times, suicide can be prevented, and most people who are feeling suicidal, they actually don't want to die, but they do want to stop their pain. If we can help distinguish between that, we can help people get through their pain. We can support them emotionally, physically, empathetically in a way that we can help them, then they can move forward. There's this myth that suicide only strikes people of a certain demographic, only veterans or only only teenagers or only people who are unemployed or only people with a poor financial status or a certain race or a certain gender or a certain sexual orientation. And that is not true. Actually, suicide can strike anyone at any time. And sometimes it does happen without warning. And so we have to know what we're looking for. There's another myth. This is the people who try to suicide and survive won't suicide again. And that's actually not true. Many people who try suicide and survive will try again. It's even more important for us to understand what those red flares are so that we can help them find the support that they need. There's another myth that says that people who try to suicide are crazy. And that's actually not true. Most of time these people are in extreme pain and if it's not a situational thing like extreme bullying or any number of situational problems it could easily be that their brain is completely on fire. I know for me, I was dealing with, not only was I dealing with toxic encephalopathy that was undiagnosed, but I was dealing with neurotoxins from medication. So I was experiencing like a double whammy. Anyone can be at risk of suicide. There's this myth that only people who are weak actually will try suicide. 
and that's actually not the case either. Anyone who has endured enormous pain for long periods of time, if it's not situational, like I was saying before, maybe their brain is on fire, but many strong and very good and amazing people have died by suicide. So it has nothing to do with whether or not a person was strong enough or a person... There's this other um, myth that actually impacted me all the time. People would say that that people who talk about suicide are actually trying to manipulate others. While that might be true for a very, very, very small percentage of people, normally people who talk about suicide are actually genuinely in pain and need help. And so telling them that they just want something or they're just trying to manipulate is not only insensitive to the situation at hand, but it's also ignorant, honestly, about what's really going on. Many people actually talk about suicide before dying by suicide. And for that reason, it's always important to take talk of suicide very seriously. Always take it seriously. There's this other myth that says that when people become suicidal or start thinking about suicide, they will always be suicidal. Actually, most people experience suicidal thoughts or feelings for a limited period of time, or sometimes it's a prolonged period of time, like I endured it for 12 years. But these suicidal feelings can go away and they can reoccur. It really just depends on each individual is going to experience this differently. There's a myth that says that people who are feeling suicidal definitely want to die, but in reality, the vast majority of people who are feeling suicidal don't want to die. They're actually in pain and they want to stop this pain or they're feeling trapped and they honestly think that suicide is the only way out of this trap. It's important to be able to ask these open-ended questions and find out, you know, what a person is experiencing and, and why they're thinking of, of suicide and why they're thinking that of that as a viable option. There's this suicide myth that you should never ask people who are feeling suicidal if they are thinking about suicide or if they've thought about a method or if they have a plan because basically that will just give them an idea to do it. In reality, asking people if they're thinking about suicide doesn't give them the idea for suicide. It's actually important to talk about suicide with people who are suicidal because you'll learn more about their mindset and their intentions and oftentimes thinking about suicide kind of like a pressure cooker of some sorts and being able to talk about it like releases a lot of that pressure. It can be very, very helpful. You don't have to go into graphic detail about anything, but being able to at least talk about it and, and use that word, scary word, being able to discuss it is extremely important. There's this myth that when people who are feeling suicidal feel better, it always means that they're no longer feeling suicidal. Sadly enough, sometimes people who are feeling suicidal actually feel better because they've decided when and how to die by suicide. Making those uh, decisions, they actually might have this sense of relief that the pain will soon be over. So we have to really be aware of these changes in behavior and moods. Another myth is that young people never suicide because they have their entire life ahead of them. But sadly, suicide is the third leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 15 and 24. And sometimes children under 10 also die by suicide. It's really, really important to get to know these red flares so that we can intervene uh, when necessary. And there 
is this idea that there's little correlation between alcohol or drug abuse and suicide, but actually the opposite is true because oftentimes people who suicide are under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And there's a myth that people who feel suicidal don't seek help, but actually a lot of times they do seek help but they seek help in ways that others don't understand. Sometimes they they seek out overtly, you know, they'll, they'll definitely ask for help because they are feeling suicide, and other times they will seek it covertly. They'll, they'll seek for support or they'll call to see if you're busy, and that's just kind of testing the waters to see if you really have enough time um, because so many people who feel suicidal, feel like they are a burden on other people and they don't want to impose on you. Many people who do feel suicidal actually do reach out for help. Those are my myths and facts of suicide and I gathered those from a variety of sources including the mental health first aid class and several classes. If you if you have the opportunity to take the mental health first aid class and become a mental health first aid responder, that's actually I highly recommend that class. Now we're going to move into the 16 red flares of possible suicidal thoughts. And I compiled this list from a variety of sources, including my own lived experience. I want you to get an understanding, again, that just because you might see one or two of these red flares doesn't mean the person is actually thinking about suicide. But you have to understand that the more red flares you see, the greater the likelihood is that the person is experiencing suicidal thoughts to start a dialogue with them. So the first red flare is talking about feeling hopeless, helpless, desperate, trapped, or in unbearable pain. Because hope is the number one defense against suicide. When a person has even just a particle of hope, if there's a little bit of hope in a person's heart, even a glimmer that things can possibly change, suicide becomes unlikely because there's this possibility that that change will happen. When a person loses this idea that change can happen, then suicide becomes more likely. So in working with and associating with people who live with symptoms of severe mental illness, when they mention feeling hopeless or helpless or desperate or trapped or in perceived unending, relentless, unbearable situations, it's like seriously seeing a huge red flare on the dark horizon of a stormy night. Whenever someone mentions something of that nature, it's always time to start asking open-ended questions to find out what's really going on. And open-ended questions are ones which cannot be answered with a single yes or a no. For example, what makes you feel like you're trapped? Or why do you feel desperate? Or what's causing this unbearable pain? Those are good examples of open-ended questions. And the good thing about this particular red flare is that in asking open-ended questions, we can begin to capture a better picture of what's going on in the person's mind. And then if they're interested, brainstorming with them to improve the circumstances. Speaking to someone who takes time to listen without providing solutions until asked can actually be extremely helpful. And sometimes it might even be appropriate to ask the person if they just need someone to listen or if they would like you to help them brainstorm ways to solve the problem. With patience and compassion and suspending judgment and just a good listening ear, because you're willing to listen, you can help a person feel valued. And not only feel valued, but feel validated. And sometimes people just need to get things off their chest. 
providing an empathetic listening ear is is an excellent way to help bring hope and humanity into a person's life. That's the first red flare. The second red flare is talking about having no sense of purpose or speaking about having no reason to live. That's pretty self-explanatory, but basically in helping people find their purpose and helping people um, learn how to take what they're experiencing and polish it in a way that can help them find a purpose or even exploring interests. I know I have a client who absolutely loves, 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 loves animals. She was feeling extremely hopeless and helpless and just stuck. I suggested to her that perhaps she could volunteer at an animal shelter. And the thought hadn't occurred to her, so we began exploring different shelters that she could work at and that she could volunteer at. And she found a place that really needed her help. Suddenly she had purpose. So things things began to change rapidly for her because she felt needed. She was needed. The third red flare is changes in sleep patterns. So sometimes people begin mixing their days and nights, or they'll begin sleeping way too much, or sleeping way too little, maybe going for days without sleep. This can cause major problems, even in being able to think coherently if you're not getting enough sleep. So changes in sleep patterns. The fourth flare is prolonged isolation from family or friends or talking about feeling completely isolated and detached. And I put those kind of together because oftentimes people who are living with severe depression, they can still be surrounded by family or friends, but they might not feel like they're connected to family or friends. They will feel alone in a crowded room of people who love them. Being able to understand if you hear someone talking about feeling completely alone or they're feeling detached, um, it's it's time to start asking some open-ended questions about what's going on. And if they're withdrawing from family, they're avoiding going to activities or they're avoiding going out, it's time to find out what's going on. You know, why, why did you stop doing X, Y, or Z? Or why... Have you chosen not to eat with our family anymore or, you know, whatever it is that's going on? Um, Asking those open-ended questions can be very helpful. Number five is giving away prized possessions. Perhaps this person starts giving away things that they really cherish. That is totally a red flag. You need to find out why they're giving these things away. Are they simply downsizing to move to a smaller apartment or are they wanting to lessen the burden of their loved ones in a way putting their affairs in order. For example, we saw this with Robin Williams. Robin Williams loved watches, and before he suicided, he actually took all of his watches in a sock to a neighbor and gave his watches something that he absolutely prized. He gave his watches away. Knowing that, you know, if someone has something that they've never wanted to part with and they're always very proud of and suddenly they're willing to give it away, you need to start asking questions. You know, why are you giving this away? This just seems so generous, but tell me more. That can help. Uh, Number six is putting affairs in order. Finding someone to take care of their pets or finding someone to watch over their kids or just doing things to get things in order for their family. 
or to make it less of a burden for their family. That is definitely a red flare. When I was working at the clubhouse, we had a woman who the entire day she just arrived and the only thing she was worried about was taking care of her cat. Can you take care of my cat? Can you take care of my cat? And, and the more I started listening to this, the more I began to wonder, because I knew how much she loved her cat, are you moving? What's going on? Why are you needing someone to take care of your cat? That is something that's really important to understand. The seventh thing is an increase in irritability or psychomotor agitation. And psychomotor agitation means that you just cannot stop moving. So irritability occurs when a person's emotional fuse is just growing really, really short. Interestingly enough, irritability and psychomotor agitation were the strongest predictors of suicide. And that was uh, actually published in an article in 2006. So irritability and psychomotor agitation were the strongest predictors of suicide. And a combination of low mood and lots of energy, so like mixed mania, you could say, is demonstrated by this psychomotor agitation. And that's when, you know, someone can't stop moving. So maybe they're flicking their fingers or maybe they're they're snapping their fingers or maybe they're shaking their hands or maybe they're, they just can't stop pacing or they can't stop rocking or they can't stop moving. They can't hold their feet still. That is actually known as akathisia and it is medicine induced. It's when your brain becomes neurotoxic. There is an exceptional class on akathisia that is free, the Akathisia 101 class. If you're interested in learning more about akathisia, I recommend that you take this class. It will take probably uh, 30 to 45 minutes to take the class. You can find the Akathisia 101 class at misd.co. So that's M as in medication, isd.co. And that's where you can find the free akathisia class. Akathisia is actually one of the most common causes of suicide. Akathisia, irritability, and psychomotor agitation are the strongest predictors of suicide, according to that research. Someone might be fidgeting, or they might be pacing, or they again, they might be rocking, or they might be trembling. And it is really a recipe for disaster under the wrong circumstances. And this becomes a problem because the person is already feeling terribly upset. This amplification in the neurotoxins, they have the energy, but oftentimes not the insight to do something about this agitation. And this particular phenomenon is common for people who are taking medication for bipolar disorder, panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, they have alcohol abuse or dependence, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, taking medications for it. Ironically, irritability and psychomotor agitation can be caused by psychiatric medication. Akathisia can be caused by several different groups of drugs, but most frequently by antipsychotics and antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. But it can also be caused by other things as well. So that's number seven. Number eight is reckless behavior. It's just that like they don't really care what they're doing and how that might impact their life. So I've seen people just suddenly decide that their motorcycle helmet is no longer needed. Um, I've heard stories of veterans playing uh, Russian roulette. It's just reckless behavior. It's like it 
doesn't really matter, so it doesn't really matter what they do. So if you recognize someone that you love or someone that you know is beginning to act reckless, it's really important to just ask them some really good open-ended questions. Hey, I see you stopped wearing your motorcycle helmet. You know, what? what's going on? Talk to me about this choice. Just to kind of help people process what they're going through. Number nine is anger. Uh, so showing rage or talking about seeking revenge, it's like the person just has a complete change in their emotional fuse. Anger can be caused, obviously, from a lot of different reasons, but anger is definitely a red flare. Number ten is an increase in drug or alcohol use. Essentially, a person is beginning to kind of take their own treatment into their own hands. So they're using these medications or alcohol or drugs in an effort to self-medicate away the symptoms that they're experiencing. Number 11 is a sudden dynamic change in mood. This can actually be caused by organic uh, reasons, um, not just other reasons. So I know for myself, I can have dynamic changes in my mood if I eat the wrong things. So for example, uh, about two years ago, I didn't realize that I had developed a severe reaction to aged things, and I absolutely love Parmesan cheese. And so I sat down with my sweetheart to eat some dinner, and I had a packet of Parmesan cheese that had just finished three rounds of antibiotics for a kidney infection. So I didn't realize it, but my gut was leaning fungal because of these antibiotics that I'd been on. I'll talk about that more in a different episode, but I, I went to eat this pizza, I opened up my package of Parmesan cheese, it exploded all over the slice, and I was like, even better because I love Parmesan cheese. So I had this Parmesan cheese, and within 20 minutes, yours truly was in the parking lot screaming literally at the neighbors, at anyone who was within screaming range, and I had completely come unglued. I was a hot, sweaty mess, and I could not stop screaming. Yeah, so it really, there can be a variety of causes for a sudden dynamic changes in mood. In my case, it was a liver problem. My gut was leaning fungal. But sometimes these dynamic changes in mood can come out of nowhere. And they're frequently, there's almost always a cause that can either be identified by the person or by a doctor. Um, so understanding these dynamic changes in mood, um, you know, people can, they call it rapid cycling, but these, these cycles can go very quickly. And sometimes it's difficult if we don't understand what's causing them, it's difficult to understand where these moods are coming from. Number 12 is when a gravely depressed person suddenly seems happy and peaceful. Perhaps you've noticed, you know, someone that you know lives with major, major severe depression. One day you see them and they seem relieved and at peace about everything, almost overnight. This is actually a really big red flare. So you need to ask them some questions, find out what has brought them this peace. Is this the peace that comes from resolving an issue and figuring out a great solution? Or is this a peace of mind that comes from knowing that he won't be struggling with this depressive despair much longer because he's planned his own suicide. You need to understand where the person's coming from. So again, asking those open-ended questions will be crucial. The 13th red flare is talking about being a burden to others. 
Um, I know for me, this was really probably one of the driving forces behind the voices that were telling me how and why to kill myself for 12 years, because they would constantly tell me what a burden I was to my loved ones, what a burden I was financially, what a burden I was. I was just this inept social burden. And this is something that I heard daily from these voices. And so understanding this is actually a very real thing, especially if you have loved ones who actually love people. (laughs) If they begin feeling like they are a burden to other friends and to their family members, that's actually a very, very bright red flare. Talking to them about why they feel like a burden, asking them, you know, those find out questions, asking them the open-ended questions. Well, talk to me more. Why do you feel like a burden or it might seem like that's burdensome but I don't feel it is a burden you know asking those questions so number 14 is overtly or covertly talking about wanting to die or wanting to kill themselves when someone mentions death or suicide we have to listen it really is a giant red flag no I take that back it's a blazing red flare Um, Because people don't generally talk about anything unless they've already given it some serious thought. The same holds true for death and suicide. So overtly talking about it or covertly talking about it, like covertly talking about suicide would be, for example, saying, oh, I wish I could just go to sleep and never wake up. That would be a covert way to talk about suicide. So again, asking those open-ended questions, finding out. What's going on? You know, why Why do you want to go to sleep and never wake up? So the 15th thing is online searches for ways to kill yourself or buying a gun or buying some other kind of weapon. Those can be red flares. Again, it's not saying that everyone who buys a gun is suicidal. It's saying that the more red flares you see, the more open-ended questions you need to ask, the more you get to know what's going on in the person's life. The 16th red flare is recent changes in medication. Whether the person just started medication or whether they just upped the dose of the medication or maybe they skipped a dose or maybe they began titrating. Essentially, the central nervous system is adjusting or under extreme duress. And a lot of times people don't realize medications people take actually induce suicidal thoughts. And so while that doesn't occur to everyone, it occurs enough that the FDA actually has black box warnings, big warnings in a black box on medication inserts. So if you don't live in the United States and you want to know if the medication your loved one or yourself is taking, you know, look up the United States FDA medication insert and find out if that medication can cause suicidal thoughts or suicidal actions. Understand that The reason why that's there is because it actually happens. This isn't something we're pulling out of our hat. This isn't something we're just saying, oh yeah, by the way, medication causes this. And, you know, it's funny because here in the United States, we actually have direct-to-consumer marketing for medication. We actually have commercials on TV for antidepressants. And at the end of the antidepressant commercial, the commercial literally says, talk to your doctor about whatever. By the way, this might cause suicidal thoughts or actions. So... I'll end my rant there, but just understand that that those suicidal thoughts and actions can be induced by neurotoxicity, which is caused by medication when the body cannot process it. Not everyone can process this medication, and so understanding the medication could actually be the cause. So recent changes in medication. 
All right, so those 16 things were, first, talking about feeling helpless or hopeless or trapped, feeling like you have no sense of purpose or speaking of having no reason to live. Third is changes in sleep patterns. Fourth is prolonged isolation from family or friends and taking or talking about feeling completely alone or detached. Fifth, giving away prized possessions. Sixth is putting affairs in order. The seventh is irritability and psychomotor agitation or akathisia. Eighth is reckless behavior. The ninth is an increase in anger or showing rage or talking about seeking revenge. The tenth is an increased use in alcohol or drug use or even an increase in medication use. Number 11 is sudden dynamic changes in mood. Number 12 is when a depressed person suddenly feels completely at peace overnight. 13 is talking about being a burden to others. 14 is overtly or covertly talking about wanting to die or wanting to kill yourself. 15 is online searches for a way to kill yourself. 15 is online searches for a way to kill oneself or buying buying means to that end. And 16 is recent changes in medicine. Medications. And again, that could either be starting a medication or upping a dose of medication or skipping a dose of a medication or even worse, cold turkey, quit, quitting medication, even titrating medication. Those are all things that you really, really, really need to take seriously. So again, this is not an exhaustive list, but the key is to start the conversation when you see any of these 16 red flares. And please learn these warning signs and learn to raise your voice. You know, it was really interesting because I actually worked for an organization. My employer actually gave me a red plastic bracelet that said, not on my watch. And that was the reflecting the determination that we had in recognizing the signs of suicide. And I have to admit that in wearing that bracelet, it made me acutely aware of my training regarding the signs of people contemplating suicide. And I was so keenly aware of that, that just a couple months later, I actually prevented someone that I hardly knew from taking her life because I took talk of suicide seriously. And it was a situation which I'd become aware of even just during a lunch break as I was just kind of scrolling through Facebook. This comment that was made just seemed a little bit off and it made me uncomfortable and it made me worry about her and her well-being. And I went to my boss and I told her what I'd read and I asked her if I could have the afternoon off and she agreed that this woman likely needed help. And so away I went. I found this woman in a darkened apartment. Initially, she acted as if, you know, nothing were out of the norm. She was totally grateful to have someone to speak to. It was about Christmas time and we were talking about life. And she even laughed at some of my corny jokes, which is actually saying quite a bit. But finally, I got enough courage to ask her about her Facebook comment. And she crumbled. And she thanked me for caring enough to act on my gut feeling admitting that she'd put the comment out there to see if anyone even cared. So my counsel to you is to listen. I stayed with that woman, listening to her. We were together for more than two hours. And the longer I was with her, the more I realized just how serious she was about taking her own life. And so we cannot be afraid to ask questions. I asked her if she was contemplating suicide. And she said that she was. And I asked her for how long she'd been thinking about it. I asked her if she had a plan. I asked her if she had means to carry out that plan. And she did. And then I had to not be afraid to take action. Sometimes people might feel like it's none of their business to intervene. And some others may feel like it's not 
in their place. But let me clarify this. As a member of the human race, you are charged with watching over and protecting other humans. So intervening when someone is showing signs of suicide is part of your life's calling. And intervening is actually a very easy thing to do. We just have to do it wisely. So in my friend's case, after listening and realizing that she'd contemplated it, she had actually come up with a plan and had means to carry out that plan. I gave her a hug, and I told her that she had two options. I explained to her that she could either come with me to the ER to get help, or if she chose not to come with me to the ER, that I would have to call 911. And the only reason I said that was because it was important for her to feel that she was still in control. So she had the choice. She could either come with me willingly to the ER or I would call 911. And the only reason I I had to do it this way was because she had a plan and she had means to carry out that plan. And frequently that's not the case. Frequently people are still in the contemplation phase or the pre-contemplation phase. Because she had a plan and because she had means to carry out that plan, then I knew that I absolutely had to take action. I created this situation where she was still in control. She could either go with me to the ER, or she could choose not to go with me, but if she chose not to go with me to the ER, then she knew that I would have to call 911. She thought about it. I told her she could have five minutes to make the choice, and we talked about it, and she ultimately decided to go ahead and go go ahead and go with me to the ER. And when we got to the ER, suddenly all was good. She was laughing, she was smiling, life was nice. The doctor said that she could go home. And I said, can I talk to you first? And he said, sure. I explained the conversation that I'd had with her and I explained her plan and I explained what she had laying for, waiting for her at her apartment, he realized that she needed to stay. If this is the case, I would recommend going to a hospital that doesn't have forced treatment. Um, in this case, she was able to stay at the hospital. She was able to stay in a safe environment. There are hospitals which don't have forced medication. It's important to get your friend or your loved one to a facility that you feel is a safe facility. So in in my heart of hearts, that's a facility that, that doesn't force medication on people because there are so many situations. For example, the reason why this woman was so upset was because she was going through a terrible divorce and she had a chronic illness which had only recently robbed her of her ability to walk on her own and so she was getting around in a power chair and there was just like this system of unending problems that were going on in her life. Medication is not going to fix situational problems like that. In her case, uh, she chose to go with me to the ER. Honestly, she was really angry when they t chose to keep her there. She was extremely upset with me. She was extremely ex upset with the doctors. It was the day before Christmas, and she was angrier than angry, actually. But she called me two days later and she thanked me and she told me that she was grateful that she could at least see her children on Christmas and that she was there. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to show people that you care. Initially, she was surprised that I was taking this so seriously, but I explained why. I've been there and so many people didn't take me seriously. And I honestly would never have talked to anyone if I wasn't 
trying to get help. And I don't think I would have had the courage to act if I had never had previous experience with this. But I genuinely feel that I'm doing this episode for a reason. You know, it's really interesting. As scary as psychiatric hospitals can be, there are so many wonderful people that are there, and the patients are not scary. And so it was funny because I went and visited her at the hospital, and when I visited her, she admitted to me that the idea of going into a mental heart ward had scared her to death, and she wanted to do whatever she could to not be locked up with the crazies. And I had to smile at that because I'd been scared to go to the hospital the first time as well. And she hugged me, and she said, you know, the patients here are normal. They're nice. They're real. They just have challenges challenges like everybody else, but these people are actually trying to do something about it. And I just thought that that was so insightful. So we need to recognize when someone chooses to get treatment for symptoms like this, it's just as serious as someone choosing to get treatment for cancer. Both cancer and mental illness can lead to death if left unchecked. So in supporting someone with mental illness, you need to support them as you would any someone with any other illness. Get a team together. Become a cheering squad. Love them. Support them and help them. Watch over them. Help them choose to find the support that they need, whatever that might be. But most importantly, take it seriously. Now that you know these flares, please, if you feel nervous about acting on these flares, you can talk to a friend, you can tell a professional, you can you can search out other friends who can maybe help you with this. But you can take a stand with determination to protect our fellow humans. Boldly proclaim not on my watch. This is episode five of the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast. I am so grateful that you stuck it through. I really think as you become more familiar with these 16 red flares, now that you understand the myths of suicide, you can make the difference in someone's life. Next week, we will be talking about the Wellness Recovery Action Plan. So be sure to stay tuned because this plan helped me get my life back on track the Wellness Recovery Action Plan for Episode 6. Talk to you soon. Bye! Thank you for listening to the Emotional Self-Reliance Podcast. For more information about this episode, check the show notes on www.psychrecoveryandrehab.com slash ESR podcast. Was this episode helpful? Leave a review and share with a friend. Keep exploring wellness tools to empower achieving your fullest potential by tuning into our weekly episodes. Until then, take care.